WRFI Community Radio News is made possible by listeners like you. Help us tell important stories about your community. Head to WRFI.org slash donate. This is WRFI Community Radio News, bringing you the news by and for the people of Ithaca and Watkins Glen. It's Friday, May 28th, 2021. I'm Fred Balfour. Today we bring you another episode of the WRFI's Which Way Forward series, the final story in this installment. When Governor Cuomo's Executive Order 203 required all local governments to view their police practices, the public safety and police departments on college campuses were out of that order's reach. Ithaca, secondly, Ithaca's lost one of its great musicians, Al Hartland a percussionist and beloved personality who will be missed. We're joined by his friend and fellow musician, Harry Aceto, to talk about Al's life, an upcoming benefit for his passing, and, of course, listen to some music. But first, the EPA is building a limestone wall at Ithaca Falls. It's their big effort to provide a more permanent control for the lead-polluted soils in a natural area. But is it enough? Michael Mimas brings us this story. Ithaca Falls is a popular destination for Ithacans and tourists alike, but it's a potentially dangerous site with a serious lead contamination issue. The EPA has worked over the years to address the issue, but are hoping to finally put it to rest by building a containment wall. The lead is a result of the old Ithaca gun factory that was located on a hill just above the gorge and the falls. So that whole cliff face is totally contaminated with lead and with uh, coal ash and with actual remnants of the shotgun shell. That's Walter Hang, an environmental activist and president of Toxics Targeting. He's been advocating for the cleanup of Ithaca Falls since 2000, and for good reason. In a study published in 2018, the DEC found lead levels of 21,000 parts per million in some locations at the falls. That's well over the allowable amount of 400 parts per million. Hang says this contaminated ground spreads. And so all the pollution is just raining down into the Gorge Trail area off of this cliff face. Every time it rains, every time it snows, every time there's wind. And the lead enters Fall Creek too. Michael Basile is the EPA's Community Involvement Coordinator, and he's hopeful that a limestone wall will contain the lead. The theory is simply to allow for erosion control to capture any, any sediments migrating from the cliff face. We're going to be putting in chain fencing to provide additional control to minimize contact with any contamination. However, Hang is not as optimistic as Basile. The contaminated areas are simply going to recontaminate the areas that get cleaned up uh, because the pollution involves lead. Lead's an element. It never breaks down. Basile hopes that the wall will be finished by July 1st. After that, care for the site will move from federal to state hands. Michael Memis, WRFI. Tompkins County is reporting one new case of COVID and a total of 34 active cases. 
Schuyler County is reporting no new cases and 16 active cases. And now here's the weather forecast, courtesy of the National Weather Service. Tonight, rain low just above 40 degrees. Saturday, chance of rain high in the lower 50s. Saturday night, chance of showers and a low in the mid-40s. Looking forward to Sunday, mostly cloudy with a chance of showers persists high in the upper 50s. Listening to WRFI Community Radio News. I'm Fred Balfour. Ithaca, Tompkins County, every municipal government with a police force in New York State had to review the way their police department worked and try to make it better. This is because of Governor Andrew Cuomo's Executive Order Number 203, issued in the summer of 2020 when Americans rose up in protest against the killing of unarmed black men and women. Local government, community members, and police departments were tasked with reviewing their use of force policies, implement training and de-escalation, and working to resolve any racial bias that permeated their ranks and duties. College campuses were out of the jurisdiction for Cuomo's executive order, but they too have police and public safety departments. Ithaca College Park Scholars Maya Noah and Lauren Leone take a look at this exception. They bring us this episode of Which Way Forward? There are a few details about college and university policing in the city of Ithaca and Tompkins County's recent reimagining public safety proposal. And that was intentional. It wasn't meant to address campus police departments. Executive Order 203 mandated local governments to review their police department policies, but didn't touch on college public safety. Although colleges were exempt from this mandate, should they have been? This question becomes especially pertinent in Ithaca, a college town totaling about 30,000 students among Ithaca College, Cornell University, and adding nearby Tompkins Cortland Community College. Paula Yowanide is a professor of comparative race and ethnicity studies at IC. She says that making policing more functional and equitable throughout the county involves bringing higher education institutions into the discussion. I mean, I do think that the colleges need to think strategically about their own relationship to systemic racism. And I don't know what they're doing and if they're doing anything. You know, certainly they haven't said anything publicly on this question as this conversation has been very front and center in the community, the colleges have stayed more or less silent. I'm Ayanoa. And I'm Lauren Leon. And you're listening to Which Way Forward. In this episode, we're looking at how a city and countywide public safety restructuring may be felt at the college and university level. How law enforcement agencies interact with one another, how students are impacted by local policing. And we're going to try to lay out how campus public safety reform can become a reality. Our focus is, of course, the jurisdictions we control, which is the Ithaca Police Department and on the county side, the Sheriff's Office. Cornell Police and the Ithaca uh, College of Public Safety are separate jurisdictions. That's Ithaca Mayor Savante Myrick. 
IC, Cornell, and TC3 have private security forces. That's why they don't fall under New York State Executive Order 203. Though, these security forces do interact with the city and county police forces. At the Reimagining Public Safety Collaborative's draft report, Presentation for Young People in March, Mayor Myrick illustrated this point. Depending on where you live on Cornell's campus, you might be in the city of Ithaca, subject to Ithaca Police Department. Or uh, if you cross the street to the townhouses, you're out in the town of Ithaca. The entirety of Ithaca College is in the town of Ithaca, and therefore under the sheriff's department, not the Ithaca Police Department. The county's baseline examination of law enforcement services states that officers from campus police departments serve as support resources for IPD and the sheriff's office. For example, TC3 officers may be dispatched to the village of Dryden to assist with off-campus incidents. But Yoanide says that in her capacity as a member of the collaborative's data analysis working group, she learned. There is no shared data system between Cornell University Police Department, Ithaca Police Department, the county. There is a shared data system between the county and the IPD. So it would have been impossible to sort of look at 911 dispatch data to that, you know, that involved the universities because they, they're under a different kind of operating system. Yowanide says that assessing 911 dispatch information was a key aspect of proposal development. There are also information gaps resulting from the city and county's outreach to campus communities and student focus groups. At a public forum in February, Myrick spoke about how the Cornell police in the Ithaca College campus safety were not included in this process. But we just, we know that we have Cornell, TC3, and IC students who live in the city and county, both on campus and off, who are under the purview of IPD and uh, the sheriff's office. So we did, we made a concerted effort to reach out to students to get their input, even though campus police were not technically included in, in this report. Dominique Johnson is Senior Director of Community Engagement at the Center for Policing Equity and a member of the Collaborative's Communications Working Group. She says, We have been working really hard to make sure that we're engaging college students. We are on the ground in Ithaca to be organic in our outreach to college students to let them know that this feedback window is open. You have the opportunity to review the draft report and offer your feedback. The student population alters the demographics of Tompkins County significantly. The Reimagining Public Safety Report outlines this itself. It states that students bring, quote, a younger and more racially diverse population than year-round Tompkins County residents as a whole, unquote. Tompkins is a predominantly white county, but about 37% of TC3's population is composed of students of color. Considering that, here's Yoanide again. A very robust study would reflect a very disparate experience for students of color compared to white students around policing, both in relation to campus policing and in relation to public policing. She says that there is a status associated with being a local student that decreases the likelihood of racial profiling by police in campus spaces. Still, Yoanide has heard from students of color that they have had to prove their school affiliation to avoid being treated like the general population, and not just students, but also faculty of color. I've heard countless, countless stories of racial stereotyping, presumptions being made about them being criminal, presumptions being made about, you know, in stops, their white peers being treated one way and then the students of color being treated another way. 
So essentially what's true for the general population nationally and locally, which is essentially a kind of presumption that people of color are a threat and that whites are not, has also been the experience of numerous, numerous students of color at Ithaca College. Myrick says students have vocalized their concerns about the need for more diverse local police departments and better unarmed response for issues that are not law enforcement related. And so this brings us to some students who are very interested in police reform, specifically the abolish disband side of police reform, um, think that this plan doesn't go far enough. That's the voice of Cat Juan, president of Cornell's Student Assembly and proponent of a resolution that calls upon the university's police department to disarm its officers. And then some of those students are at least happy that it's happening because, you know, this general police reform in Ithaca, you know, we're not really seeing that at Cornell yet. Cornell President Martha Pollack rejected the disarmament resolution, citing the interdependence between IPD and CUPD for patrolling university grounds and responding to calls that originate on campus. Cornell University Police Department declined to comment. And I think it's really frustrating that we won't and we refuse to use our power and our influence and our name um, to try to affect any kind of change. I think Cornell fails to recognize that police reform affects students. Change starts at home um, and they're refusal to acknowledge or be a part of this process um, is a refusal to protect their students. Juan says the Reimagining Public Safety Task Force did not solicit feedback from the Student Assembly, despite Cornell's social and economic strength locally, nationally, and internationally. IC underwent a comprehensive external review of its policing policies and practices in 2016. This is a measure that Carrie says is among ongoing efforts to reconcile what the review called the Office of Public Safety's deeply tarnished reputation in the campus community. Rosanna Farrow, Ithaca College's Vice President of Student Affairs and Campus Life, says that a reinvention of local policing should consider the concerns of colleges and universities as the proposal's recommendations are realized. I did make that recommendation that the three colleges in the area, given how many students we have living off campus, while we weren't involved in the development, that we are engaged in conversations as the plan is being um, implemented. Johnson says she encourages students to develop a clear vision for what they hope their school's public safety landscape will look like when they take action for improved interactions with campus police officers. The role is up to young people to sort of mobilize and to think about the ways that these draft recommendations are going to influence or impact them and then use what does work or doesn't work in that plan to be able to leverage and ask for the changes that they're hoping to push forward within their local school context. The Reimagining Public Safety Report recommends the employment of armed and unarmed officers. President Pollock's rejection explains that Cornell wants to keep its armed officers because it otherwise would have to defer to IPD's armed officers for on-campus call response. Juan says this has changed the dialogue around the disarmament resolution. We're seeing a model where, uh, first of all, like we have a different kind of IPD folks coming in, possibly onto Cornell's campus, and like we should be encouraging Cornell to maybe adopt their own kind of model with CUPD. And even if they don't change the CUPD, I think students are encouraged by the fact that we would have folks who are trained in mental health calls coming from the IPD rather than IPD officers. So unfortunately, like I think this should change the narrative. We haven't heard greater conversation from administration about this at all. She says that going forward, she hopes for Cornell to look critically at its public safety model and be transparent about its funding and data reporting. 
students are not privy to the Cornell University Police Department um, budget, which I think is really frustrating. We have a right to know where, you know, what kind of money is going where, especially if it's coming from, you know, our tuition, our money that we're paying. Juan went on to say that there is a consensus among the student population that armed CUPD officers should not respond to incidents like mental health calls and that reliance should be shifted away from CUPD and toward alternative community solutions. Cornell is notorious for having a really terrible mental health culture and not having enough mental health counselors ever. You know, it takes months, weeks to get counseling appointments. So, you know, that's one very clear place that, you know, the money could or should be reallocated to um, funding mental health, more mental health counselors. Yoanide says that in addition to student advocacy, college and university boards of trustees will have to undertake their own efforts to redistribute budget funds and internally reform campus policing systems. If Tompkins County and City of Ithaca change their policing, the colleges will also have to change their policing, right? Because they work in partnership with these departments. And so, you know, some conversations need to happen there as well. And it may be that students need to push them to have those conversations before they'll do it. So this connects with Juan's discontent with Cornell's lack of initiative. She would have liked to see the university participating in public safety talks, despite the policy loopholes, that excluded colleges and universities from this conversation. I think it is a relative oversight not to include police, like university police departments within that hall. So all I can say is, yeah, I wish that would have changed. I think Cornell probably should have taken the impetus to um, re-examine their own policing, um, even without that order. For the time being, city resources and services will remain available to campus public safety departments, like IPD walking patrols, police training, and equipment. Kerry says that it is unclear what campus public safety operations will look like under this proposed model until the recommendations are implemented. This piece was written by Aiden Glendon, me, Maya Noah, and myself, Lauren Leone. This story was produced with help from Jimmy Jordan. This has been Maya Noah and Lauren Leone for WRFI. Listening to the last episode for this installment of WRFI's reporting series, Which Way Forward? You can listen to the other episodes in this series anywhere you get your podcasts. We're going to take a quick break, but stick around. When we come back, we'll be bringing you memories of a mainstay in Ithaca's music scene. We will hear about the recently passed away Al Hartland from his friend and bandmate, Harry Iseto. Stay with us. Community Radio News, 
I'm Fred Balfour. We now turn to Harry Aceto, speaking about his recently passed away friend and fellow musician, Al Hartland. Hartland was by reputation an amazing percussionist. He passed away from complications from several medical issues, and there will be a benefit for his family this coming Monday. Felix Teitelbaum has more. He brings us this conversation from the WRFI show, The Launch Pad. You're on The Launch Pad on WRFI Community Radio, and my name is Felix, and I'm very pleased to welcome Harry Aceto to the airwaves. Hello, Harry. Hey, how are you doing? Good. Very nice to get you to call in on such late notice and to tell us a little bit about local drummer Al Hartland, who passed away just the other day. Yeah, he was, you know, integral part of the Ithaca music scene for, you know, since the 70s. I first became aware of him when I first moved to town in 74. He was playing with a really hot R&B band called Hot Sweets at the, the Salty Dog, which is kind of used to be the, the iconic music club down on the inlet there. It's also been called, you know, Captain Joe's Reef and you know, a bunch of other names, but Salty Dog is a legendary club. And, you know, I walked in that place. My first reaction was, who the hell is this guy? Where did he come from? He was just, like, so amazing and powerful. Wow. You know, deep pocket, deep groove, like I hadn't heard. And, um, you know, I, I didn't meet him right then, but I, a few years later I started working with him in various contexts. You know, rhythm section guys kind of have to cover all styles, especially in a small town like this, to make a living. So, you know, he was primo R&B, rock and roll, blues, Latin music, you know, samba, bossa nova, merengue, all that kind of stuff. He, you know, he worked with everybody in town. Wow, what a range. Um, one of my favorite projects with him was Deacon the Dactyls. Huh, what was he that? And, uh, Don Carr is a guy that plays Hammond organ and a very soulful guy. I think he's from Philly, and uh, he's been kind of under the radar for years, but he was a big influence on me. Those two guys taught me all about funk and, and making the groove happen. Trying to think of some of his other projects. I oh, see here David Torn, uh, Billy Eli, uh, some national acts there. Michael mm -hmm. Michel Frambeau. Yeah. And uh, Jug Django is even listed yeah, here. Jug Django thing, we did a regular Wednesday gig for about five years in a row at Lot 10. It had a couple of different names. You know, the, the place changed owners and changed names three or four times. But the band was still there every Wednesday. <laughs> It turned into this real community thing. People would come and dance, and they would allow people to get up and sing with the band in the second set. So we were providing a real public service there, I think, for people to have some music therapy in all these crazy times. Right, and we sure and, could use that these days. I understand Jug Django is putting on a benefit for Heartland's family on Monday night up at the, the Cider House up there in South Danby. South Hill Cider. South Cider on Sandbank Road. Yeah, it'll be 5.30 to 8.30 and hosted by Jug Django, but we'll have Annie Burns will be singing a few tunes with us, and uh, there should probably be some other guests, which I'm not aware of yet, but a lot of people have expressed desire to, to help out with this benefit, so it should be a good night. Right. Have you guys been holding down a, a regular gig uh, at all recently? Or I know, you know, most everything has been canceled, but they've had stuff up there because uh, they've had an outdoor space. Yeah, we just played uh, last month, this, this past Monday, uh, for our first gig of the season. We're going to be doing every Monday for the next few months, doing a jazz night. But they also have great old-time music and you know, singer-songwriters and stuff on, on other nights. But Monday is jazz night in South Carolina. And uh, again... And, uh, Monday is a benefit for Hartland's family. We know how medical bills and, and these things can really pile up. So uh, that's uh, very cool that you guys are, are 
reaching out and making some support for the family there. Well, we're, we miss him, and um, I'm sorry he's gone, and but um, we just, you know, we want to help out any way we can. Uh, I know hospital bills can be crippling. Already, as Annie Burns has started a GoFundMe with a goal of $10,000. I think we've raised 8000 so far, so we're going to try to make up the difference on Monday night. Well, uh, Harry Aceto, thanks so much for calling in. Um, I want to play a track uh, that you mentioned that, that Al played on, uh, I think, the, uh, the both of you, with London McDaniel. Correct. So this is from uh, A Natural Aphrodisiac. Uh, did you, you have anything you want to tell us about this album and, and working with Al on it? Um, well, Al and I kind of went in there, and we didn't know, really know what to expect. London is quite a character. He went to school at Berkeley. He's got a lot of music in his family. His father was Eugene McDaniels, who had some hits back in the 60s and high-level producer. But London, his thing for that record was taking some standards and reharmonizing them, writing words to them. He just had his own concept, and he just let us know what he wanted, and we tried to give it to him. So it was pretty much improvised on Al on my part. And uh, I had no idea what it was going to sound like, but came out pretty darn good, I thought. Well, very cool. I think this is the first cut. It's I Said I Didn't Care, But I Lied. And that's featuring Al Hartland on drums. There's a benefit for his family up at the South Hill Cidery on uh, Sandbank Road on Monday night, 5.30 to 8.30. And once again, we've been speaking with Harry Asita. Thanks so much, Harry, for calling in and for all the work you do in the community. Thanks for helping to get the word out about this benefit, Felix. Take care. You bet. Have a great afternoon. Here's London McDaniel with Harry Cito and Al Hartland on drums. I said I didn't care, but I lied.
And then we'll do it for our program today. The music you heard on today's show came from Blue Dot Sessions, and this one is from Zylo Zico. If you want to hear more and to get daily updates on COVID-19, head over to WRFI.org. This show and all of WRFI's reporting is available anywhere you get your podcasts. If you value what we do here and would like to contribute, you can support this program by going to WRFI.org slash donate. And we'd love your help in the studios. We're looking for new volunteers. There are opportunities for remote hosting, writing, or producing original stories. No experience necessary. If you want to join our news team, please email news at ithacaradio.org. Jimmy Jordan is a WRFI news director and producer for our program. If you have a question, tip, or comment for the news team, you can reach, reach us here, reach us reporters here at news at ithacaradio.org. We'll be back next week and every Friday at 5 to bring you more of the stories impacting our communities. On behalf of the entire WRFI news team, take care, be well, and have a good evening. One, two, three. W R F I.